you are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for Catholic News. My name is Chris Mahalik. Source of our program is denvercatholic.org. Colorado lawmakers introduced pro-abortion bill package. Here's how you can help. By the Colorado Catholic Conference. On March 9, 2023, the Colorado General Assembly introduced an abortion legislation package referred to as the Reproductive Health Equity Act 2.0, a series of bills whose predecessor made Colorado one of the most extreme pro-abortion states in the country. Yet, pro-abortion lawmakers are still pushing for more abortion access, including eliminating a woman's choice to sustain her pregnancy and save her child's life through abortion pill reversal treatment, restricting the good work of pregnancy resource centers for our community, circumventing Colorado's constitutional prohibition against public funding of abortion, increasing access to contraception and abortion referrals to minors, violating First Amendment rights of medical professionals and hospitals that do not provide abortion-related or gender-affirming care, violating First Amendment rights of employers who do not provide abortion or gender-affirming care in their insurance plan, the so-called Safe Access to Protected Health Care package of three bills includes Senator Bill 23190, prohibiting deceptive practices at anti-abortion centers, Senate Bill 23189, increasing access to reproductive health care services, Senate Bill 23188, protecting health care patients, providers, and assisters. Here is an initial breakdown of RHEA 2.0. One. Senate Bill 23190, Prohibiting Deceptive Practices at Anti-Abortion Centers, sponsors Senators Faith Winter and Janice Marchman, and Representatives Karen McCormick and Elizabeth Epps. If enacted, Senate Bill 190 would ban the abortion pill reversal treatment. Pro-abortion lawmakers are removing the choice of a woman to sustain her pregnancy and save her child's life. Pro-abortion pill reversal is a safe and effective way to attempt to reverse the effects of chemical abortion by taking progesterone, a naturally occurring hormone. It is prescribed by a licensed medical provider to outcompete the life-ending effects of chemically induced abortion for the baby. Progesterone, the the progestation hormone, is crucial to sustaining pregnancies and has been widely used for decades by OBGYNs around the world to help mitigate the threat of a pregnancy loss, whether that be naturally in a miscarriage or electively in a chemical abortion. There are no known side effects for the baby and no adverse effects for the mom. Babies who have been born to mothers who have taken progesterone during pregnancy are healthy and strong. The protocol during abortion pill reversal works to restore the mother's hormones to reverse the effects of the chemical abortion pill. This is a violation of First Amendment freedom 
of those who wish to promote the safety and accessibility of abortion pill reversal treatment, ban advertising of pregnancy resource centers. Poor abortion lawmakers are attempting to shut down life-affirming alternatives to abortion for women experiencing an unexpected pregnancy, again eliminating choice. Pregnancy resource centers are life-affirming centers that provide care and resources to assist women and families with immediate and ongoing needs related to unexpected pregnancy. Their focus and advertisement on alternatives to abortion is designed to empower a woman to welcome her child into the world. Pregnancy resource centers outnumber abortion clinics 51 to 20 in the state of Colorado, which is why the abortion lobby is pushing Colorado lawmakers to eliminate life-affirming choices for women. This is a violation of Pregnancy Resource Center's First Amendment rights by uh, by compelling state-sanctioned disclosures for pregnancy centers regarding abortion, which has previously been acknowledged as a violation of freedom of speech by the U.S. Supreme Court. Senate Bill 23-189, Increasing Access to Reproductive Health Care Services, sponsors Senator Dominic Marino and Lisa Cutter, and Representatives Daphna Michelson, Janae, and Lorena Garcia. If enacted, Senate Bill 189 would attempt to circumvent Colorado's prohibition against public funding of abortion in Section 50 of Article 5 of the Colorado Constitution by requiring for large employer insurance plans to provide coverage for the total cost of an abortion and requiring individual or small group plans to provide abortion coverage if the Federal Department of Health and Human Services approves it. A religious exemption is not guaranteed but may be determined by the state court system. Expanding the state-run reproductive health care program to allow minors under the age of 19 to apply for and enroll themselves in a state-funded family planning services and family planning-related services program, which includes access to contraception and abortion referrals without parent consent. Senate Bill 23188, Protecting Health Care Patients, Providers, and Assisters, sponsors Senators Julie Gonzalez and Sonia Yaquez-Lewis, and Representatives Mac Froelich and Brianna Titone. If enacted, Senate Bill 188 would also contain First Amendment violations, including restrictions against the ability of medical providers to terminate contracts of employees who violate lawful ethical religious directives by either performing gender-affirming care, transition surgeries, hormone therapy, etc., or abortion-related services, abortion, tubal litigations, etc. It contains no religious exemption. Provisions regarding insurance provider requirements for gender-affirming care This is a similar provision to what was in the Obama Admin Affordable Care Health Care Act and was subsequently and successfully challenged by Burwell v. Hobby Lobby in 2014 for violating religious liberty. Here's how you can help. Watch and share Pro-Life Colorado's video of a Colorado mother sharing her story of using the abortion pill reversal process 
while a Denver-based Bella Health and Wellness OBGYN explains the safety, efficacy, and common practice of the treatment for women who choose to preserve the life of their preborn child after taking chemical-induced abortion pill. Write to your representatives. Stay tuned to the Colorado Catholic Conference Action Alerts for updates on the hearing schedule and how to testify. Finally, mark your calendars. Rally for Life, April 4th, 2023, from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m., Colorado Capital West Steps. Pro-Life Coalition is hosting a rally on the one-year anniversary of Colorado's horrible abortion law, the Reproductive Health Equity Act, that has claimed the lives of thousands more children in our state in its first year since enactment. This rally will we will announce the Pro-Life Colorado's partnership with National March for Life to launch the inaugural Colorado March for Life beginning April 2024. Since its enactment in 2022, RHEA codified into state law elective abortion up to the moment of birth for 40 weeks of pregnancy, abortion based on discrimination of sex, race, or children with disabilities such as Down syndrome, a so-called fundamental right for a woman to receive an abortion which has impact on other state law, including the parental notification requirement for minors receiving abortion and regulation on abortion for the health and safety of the woman and baby, the complete removal of all independent and derivative rights under the law of Colorado for pre-born children at all stages of development, RHEA violates the fundamental human right to life for millions of preborn children, hurts women and families, and it is out of touch with the desires of millions of Colorado voters. God's plan for humanity is a gift of mercy by Vladimir Mauricio Perez. People often wonder why God appears to be punishing and unmerciful in the Old Testament and merciful in the New but this question fails to take the whole Bible into account. It is It not only ignores the severity of Jesus' words, but also God's saving plan and the numerous passages that attest to his loving mercy in the Old Testament, especially in response to the constant offenses of his people. God's loving mercy becomes evident from the very beginning, from the very first sin. In response to Adam and Eve's fall, God does not abandon humanity. Instead, he announces his saving plan by which he will reverse the outcome of their transgression. His prophecy that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, is fulfilled in Mary and Jesus. But what moves God to be merciful? The answer is not complicated. It is his love for us. Scripture tells us that God made all things good. He had no need of man, but in his infinite mercy, he created man so that we could share in the immeasurable love and bliss of the Holy Trinity. This desire for the eternal happiness of man is at the root of all God's commandments, rebukes the mercy throughout the salvation history, culminating in the coming of Christ. Old Testament, a faithful and loving God, after Adam and Eve's fall, God did not leave man to his own devices. He chose a people to reveal himself to the world 
and bound himself to them through a covenant. The Old Testament shows us that the mercy of God is bound to his faithfulness and love. He is a God of merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus 34.6 A thorough reading of the Old Testament shows the unfaithfulness of God's chosen people to the covenant and the way in which God constantly brings them back to himself and promises to restore them out of pure love. Two Types of Mercy St. John Paul II explained that the Old Testament makes use of two different terms that can be translated as mercy or love, hesed and rahamin. Hesed refers to the loving mercy of God in the context of a relationship. More concretely, it is used in reference to God's covenant with his chosen people. Whenever the people of Israel broke the covenant and its conditions, God was no longer obliged to keep his side of the contract. Nonetheless, it was then that divine mercy displayed its more profound meaning as love that gives love more powerful than betrayal, grace stronger than sin. For this reason, Israel could not demand mercy from God. The Lord gave it whenever Israel violated the corresponding conditions. Israel could only hope that God would grant it. The second term, St. John Paul II tells us, refers to the type of mercy a mother shows her children. It's not love that can be earned. It is given freely. God shows this type of love for his people in many ways. For example, he says, Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even if these may forget, yet I will never forget you. These are the two types of mercy which, with which God loves his people in the Old Testament. Even when Israel repeatedly deviates from God's plan, God sooner or later frees them from their enemies and promises them salvation. Christ, mercy incarnate, God fully manifests his loving mercy in the coming of his son Jesus. As St. John Paul II states, not only does Jesus speak of mercy and explain it by the use of comparisons and parables, but above all, he himself makes it incarnate and personifies it. He himself, in a certain sense, is mercy. God's loving mercy is so superior to the evil and sin of man that he decided to take on the cost of our unfaithfulness himself by becoming man, so that we may still partake in the bliss he created for us. St. Paul explains it thus, He saved us, not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but in virtue of his own mercy through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that we might be justified by his grace and become heirs in hope of eternal life. Yet, In revealing the depths of God's mercy, Jesus encounters the opposition of a false sense of mercy held by the Pharisees and scribes. His teaching was a source of scandal because it contradicted their views. He didn't only eat with sinners and tax collectors, he also forgave sins, something only God had the power to do. Today, Church, Eucharist, and Confession, St. John Paul II also states that mercy 
constitutes the fundamental content of the messianic message of Christ and the constitutive power of his mission. Thus, Christ wanted the Church to give testimony of God's mercy from generation to generation. The Church professes and proclaims this mercy in a unique way through the Eucharist and the Sacrament of Reconciliation. The Eucharist, by being the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, is a testament to the loving mercy of God, who desires always to be united with us and present in our midst, coming to meet every human heart. On the other hand, through the sacrament of confession, each person can experience mercy in a unique way, that is, the love, which is more powerful than sin. The Pope tells us that no human can prevail over this power of mercy. The only thing that can limit it is our own lack of readiness to be converted and repent. If a person does not accept the evil he has done, then he also does not think he is in need of mercy. It is only possible to receive mercy if one acknowledges that he has acted unjustly and desires to act otherwise. What so often keeps us from receiving his mercy is precisely our own ideas of what constitutes good and evil. This Lent, let us strive to let God's word form our minds so that, having been transformed by this inexhaustible mercy in the sacraments of confession and the Eucharist, we may obtain the glory he created for us. Can the Eucharist Save Civilization? by Jared Stout We often repeat that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. What happens when this source and summit has been rejected by a majority of Catholics? We received a wake-up call from the 2019 Pew survey on Eucharistic belief or lack thereof among the Catholics, with only 31% affirming transubstantiation. And ever since, we have been scrambling about what to do. The U.S. bishops have initiated a multi-year Eucharistic revival, which began this last summer and will culminate next July in the first Eucharistic Congress in a country since 1926. The revival provides us with a great opportunity for renewal of faith and practice, but we also need to address the root cause of the crisis. Should we have been surprised by the Pew survey? An overwhelming majority of Catholics do not attend Mass regularly. I suppose if Catholics believe in the real presence, they would make more of an effort to go to Mass to receive it. For decades, the Church offered abysmal catechesis, a problem that has been rectified somewhat in the last 20 years, at least in terms of the quality of content offered. The crisis goes beyond instruction, however, needing a deeper and more holistic approach to catechesis. We learn from what we see more than what we hear. Have we been acting like Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist? Do we act like the incarnate God has made himself present to us when we are at Mass? Or do we act more like we are receiving a piece of bread? It's an important question for each of us to ask as we enter into a revival of our Eucharistic life. The Eucharist, more than simply a belief, is meant to be lived. A revival will be successful if Jesus' sacramental presence in the Church truly does become the source and summit of the Christian life. The Eucharist is meant to be the center of how we live. 
shaping everything we do and making it an expression of our communion with Christ. Catechesis is meant to be an apprenticeship in how to live as a Christian. Even though one of its goals is to teach the faith, it is not meant to simply convey information, but rather focus on deepening faith and help the catechized to approach their faith and live live it out in prayer, charity, and mission. We need a catechesis for the Eucharist that will help Catholics to receive the graces offered in the sacrament and respond to them concretely. If we embrace this gift more deeply, we will see transformation in the Church and also the world. Can the Eucharist save civilization? This is the title of my new book, which seeks to explain how Eucharistic builds culture, an entire way of life that flows forth from its Divine Presence, Jesus' sacramental presence makes us his tabernacles in the world, sanctifying all that we do. There is no more powerful force in the universe for change, for the renewal of not only our own lives, but the entire world. God changes the world, not simply by sweeping away the problems of our society and setting up a perfect form of government. His kingdom is not of this world, of course. He changes the world by changing us and gives us a mission to take the graces he gives us and put them into action. The Eucharist is our plan of action, the source that provides the true solution to our problems and the summit toward which we aspire, communion with God and others. In our revival, we should think big. If we simply aim at better teaching or hosting a few events, we will make an impact but perhaps not one that will turn the lives of Catholics upside down. That is what we need, a complete revitalization of Catholics through the awesome mystery of the Eucharist. Look at what the Eucharist has done in the past. It gave Christians courage to withstand lions in the Colosseum, guided monks and created oases of prayer in a barbarian world, inspired the construction of transcendently beautiful churches, led missionaries across the globe, and has kept the church alive somehow through so many crises in the modern world. This is why we need to think bigger. Jesus wants to revitalize the world and its culture through us right now, and this revival might begin with us. The Eucharist is the greatest force for change. It can and will transform us into other Christs for the world. We are not simply individuals, however, no matter how much the world tells us that we are autonomous. Civilization, which is itself a communion of people, can be saved by changing and transforming those living within it. By transforming our lives, God will begin the work of transforming our family, our parish, our work, and over time even our civilization. This should be the new goal of our Eucharistic revival. We will conclude this program with Saints of the Day, Feast Day, March 11th. Saint Aurea. Saint Aurea was born around the year 1042 in a village of Villa Vallejo, Spain. As a youth, Aurea studied the scriptures and the lives of the early martyrs of the church. Her favorite saints to meditate upon and imitate were Agatha, Eulalia, and Cecilia. As a young woman, Aurea 
decided to leave home and join a convent. She was welcomed into the convent of St. Milan de la Cagola and completely applied herself to monastic life. She did follow the life of asceticism. By the age of 20, she was living in a cave where Aurea received a vision of her three favorite saints and was encouraged to follow her chosen lifestyle with greater zeal. God used St. Aurea to work many miracles, and many people sought her advice and prayers. Aurea spent only a few years of her life in a monastery. Around the year 1069, she contracted a painful disease and died at the age of 27. Thank you for joining us. My name is Chris Mahalik. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.